You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing the problem of bacterial resistance and a crisis in new antibiotic development. In this segment, we will focus on the reasons why bacterial antibiotic resistance is increasing in the United States. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Henry Masur, President of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. He is also Chief of the Critical Care Medicine Department at the Clinical Center of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Masur recently wrote an opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal calling attention to the dangers of growing bacterial antibiotic resistance and the problems with public policy. Welcome, Dr. Masur. Thank you for appearing on the show. Good. I'm glad to be here. I'd like to start with some basic background questions for you so as to give our listeners a better perspective regarding bacterial resistance. First off, what kind of numbers or incidence numbers or percentages are we talking about when it comes to hospitalized patients acquiring nosocomial infections? There's great variability from hospital to hospital and region to region in terms of resistance, but we do know several facts. For instance, with staph aureus, more than 50% of the isolates in hospitals are now resistant to methicillin in most areas of the country. So that means that for staphylococcal infections, uh, uh, one has to assume that it's a MRSA rather than a sensitive organism. For gram-negative infections with Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter, Klebsiella, E. coli, in many hospitals, resistance to first-line drugs can be in the 20% to 50% range. What this means is that we have to look very carefully at the results of resistance testing to make sure that we have patients on the appropriate drugs. It also means that before we have those results, we need to have broad empiric regimens to cover all the likely possibilities in case we're dealing with resistance rather than a sensitive organism. What can you say about uh, mortality? Have there been any nationwide estimates of mortality uh, from these resistant bacteria? There are many studies that show that particularly among gram-negatives, the more resistant the drug, the higher their mortality due to that uh, infection in a given patient. And I think the reasons for this are twofold. One is the patients who tend to get resistant infections, particularly in the hospital, tend to be a sicker group of patients. And number two, when we run out of safe alternatives, we're using drugs that may have in vitro activity but are less effective clinically and sometimes have major toxicity problems. Have there been any estimates of cost of resistant bacteria? There's no doubt that whether one is talking about bloodstream infections, pneumonias, urinary tract infections, the cost of hospitalization goes up, not just because of the uh, acquisition cost for the antibiotics, but clearly the duration of hospitalization goes up, the number of procedures that are needed goes up, so that the total cost is increased substantially in the tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars for each resistant bacterial infection that occurs. Are there patients that are particular risk for developing MRSA? Uh, is there a subgroup of patients? Is it all hospitalized patients? Are there people in the community that are at specific risk? Are there any subgroups of risk that can be identified? MRSA is being seen both in the community and in hospitals. So that there's a community-acquired version and a hospital-acquired version. The two types of resistance staff are really intermingling, so that the community-acquired and hospital-acquired are getting more and more similar. But we know that this is an infection that is acquired from 
person-to-person contact so that we are seeing this in specific populations such as athletes who transfer this uh, from skin-to-skin contact or in the locker room from sharing things like towels. We know that this can be uh, spread during sexual contact, so it's common among men men having sex with men. Uh, We also know that in certain situations like during influenza that staff has a real predilection for causing pneumonia after influenza has occurred, so that we know populations where this is likely to occur, and it clearly can be devastating, regardless of whether the individual is previously healthy or whether the individual has severe, severe underlying morbidities and has been chronically hospitalized. What about uh, the pattern of acquiring vancomycin-resistant enterococci, uh, resistant E. coli? I think that uh, medical professions in general are slightly less familiar with these uh, resistant E. coli. But are there populations that are at particular risk for this as well? The gram-negative infections, uh, the Klebsiella's and E. coli that we're seeing, are often seen in patients who are on antibiotics in the hospital. So there is selection by antibiotic pressure. There is transmission in the hospital, which we're desperately trying to reduce, but we know still occurs, so that it's the hospitalized patients often on many different antibiotics who are most likely to get these organisms. Vancomycin-resistant enterococci is also a terribly common problem in many hospitals, Uh, and this, again, is seen in patients who acquire this in the hospital, often when they've been on quinolones, They've been on cephalosporins. These drugs select for vancomycin-resistant enterococci, and often then they can predominate and cause bloodstream infections, urinary tract infections, or even wound infections. If you have vancomycin-resistant enterococci, frankly, I'm actually lucky to know that vancomycin even treats enterococci, but assuming you have vancomycin-resistant enterococci, uh, what are your antibiotics of choice? For VRE, we have really three options. We have linazolid, which is an effective drug which has bone marrow toxicity, but has good penetration in uh, most anatomic sites and is very effective. However, for linazolid and for the other drugs we're going to discuss, resistance is slowly occurring, so this drug is likely not to be universally effective for long. A second option is daptomycin, also a good drug, with very little toxicity, has activity, but resistance is beginning to be seen. The only other drug that is often active is Synersid, a combination drug which has drug interactions, which can cause severe myalgias in patients. It is probably a less desirable drug than either linazolid or daptomycin, but really those three drugs, Synersid, daptomycin, and linazolid, are the only drugs that are likely to be active against vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, or VRE. Uh, The Centers for Disease Control recommends culturing at uh, 36 weeks uh, all pregnant patients and then administering penicillin to the 40% of laboring mothers who test positive. And so we're giving penicillin, actually, to 40% of all inpatient uh, parturients in the United States to reduce the rate of serious needle natal strep infections from an estimated 1 in 400 without this protocol uh, to 1 in 2,000, because after all, the protocol isn't perfect. Uh, What I'm wondering about is when will the other shoe drop? That is, uh, is there any talk in the infectious disease community about 
uh, a new bacteria to emerge that will cause newborns the same damage that we're preventing currently with beta strep, or we just haven't seen it yet? I think that's a terrific question, and I think that we worry about two things. One is that the penicillin therapy will select out for a group B strep, which becomes less and less susceptible to penicillin, so that we'll need other drugs to reduce this disease. The other issue, as you bring up, is uh, will we select for a different organism? That hasn't happened yet, but I think as uh, we change human flora with the antibiotics that are used in humans and with the antibiotics that are used uh, uh, in animals, we're going to see new organisms emerging, and they will have new manifestations that we don't currently expect. So we don't see anything on the horizon that we can identify, but that doesn't mean that the scenario you described isn't going to happen. I, I know that the CDC gave uh, deliberate thought to that. Uh, I was just uh, wondering, because as far as I knew, nothing has happened yet, and uh, my suspicion so far is correct. We just haven't seen any negative response so far. We, we certainly have many years of experience with this, so the good news is we haven't seen ad any adverse consequences yet, but it also brings up the point that when we let down our guard with surveillance, uh, then we suddenly find we're in the midst of something uh, uh, that uh, uh, is a much larger problem than we ever expected. So we need to make sure that we maintain surveillance of pregnant women, that we do cultures, that we make sure we get an identification of any problems that occur in the mother or uh, the uh, neonate so that we can identify what the organism is, we can identify susceptibility uh, pattern, and can identify a problem while it's still a small problem before it becomes a large problem. I have a, a very broad question um, that really goes to the heart of our subject matter. And the question is, why is antibiotic resistance among bacteria rising? Is this because we're overusing the drugs? Is it inevitable? Is it some combination or some other factor? No matter how much uh, we try to restrict our antibiotics, I think we can expect that some resistance will occur. So that what we're trying to do is slow down the development of resistance, and we're not doing a very good job of that. We're not doing a very good job of that because we over-prescribe antibiotics for infections that can't possibly be successfully treated. Many viral infections, which are not treated by antibacterials, are often treated with an antibacterial either because uh, the physician misdiagnoses what the problem is or more often, the patient puts so much pressure on the physician that uh, something be done, the physician prescribes something, even though there's very little likelihood this can be effective. So we need more discipline by our patient population, and importantly, we need more direction from our physician population to use antibacterials appropriately. Because the more we overuse them, we know the more toxicities will occur, but the more resistance will also occur. We also have to recognize that a larger looming problem is the use of antibiotics in veterinary medicine, in uh, cattle, in sheep, in other uh, animals. Uh, the use of antibiotics can increase the size of animals. It can reduce the wastage in herds. So there's a big pressure to use these, but the more these drugs are used, the more these animals are colonized with highly resistant uh, bacteria. And then when we acquire these bacteria, when we're handling raw chicken, when we're handling raw beef or lamb, if we then develop an intestinal infection, a urinary tract infection, 
we will be colonized with these highly resistant organisms, and then we will have human disease that is difficult to treat because not humans getting antibiotics, but because animals were given antibiotics. I think we have to seriously consider whether the economic benefits of using antibiotics in the veterinary uh, situation warrants the toll they're going to take on human disease. I want to thank Dr. Henry Masur, the president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the problem of bacterial resistance and the crisis in antibiotic development. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Be safe. Be informed. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.